with Michael Glab here on WFHB 91.3 and 98.1 FM for Bloomington, Ellettsville, and Brown County. I'm your guest host today, Alex Ashkin, with the wonderful, amazing comedy leader and comedy attic owner, Jared Thompson, co-founder also of the Limestone Comedy Festival with the very, very funny Matt Alano Martin. How are you doing today, Jared? I'm doing good. That was, a, that was like maybe the nicest intro as everyone's ever given me. Was, thank you. Well, you, you have a special place in my heart as a stand-up comedian, sort of diehard, who grew up watching Comedy Central present fresh brew, all that sort of stuff. The fact that I get to have a chance to talk to you today and just talk about comedy in Indiana and building a community around comedy is a pleasure to me. So, Well, thanks, man. I appreciate that. I'm a little curious because in researching you, it was actually a little hard to try and find out some of these things that sort of happened pre-comedy attic. I was able to learn a little bit about, you know, you grew up in Kill Devil Hills, North Carolina, which is just a little north of Nags Head. And I saw that like early on, right after high school, you got you got really involved in like working at music stores like record shops and booking for like punk shows and mm-hmm. things like that. When you were at that age, were you always interested in sort of like entertainment? Well, First of all, you've done more research maybe than anybody that has ever interviewed me has. That's for sure. I mean, seriously, uh, very, I don't know if anyone's ever brought up any of this stuff. So basically when I was in really like late, late middle school, I happened upon uh, green day mm-hmm. and basically it's a long story, but I just somehow found out about this, about L- lookout records, which was their first label and I sent, you know, like a self-addressed stamped envelope to Lookout Records to get a catalog. And they send me a catalog. And it just so happened that around that time, Green Day's second album was released. And that was, I was in, I guess, right before ninth grade. So I just started to get into punk rock. Like this would have been like 1991, 1992. And so when you live in a small town like you're like you're talking about and when you say so K- kill devil hills and nags head are the same thing like it's sort of like saying the east side of bloomington the west side of bloomington it's just okay. like my point is it's so small that like you don't really even know that someone <laughs> lives in nags head or so but anyway like i grew up there and there was nothing to do as you can imagine and i went vegan in like ninth grade and there was no there, i couldn't there's nothing to eat like I, I had to basically just eat rice. Like it's the really the weird world that we live in now where you can go to the grocery store and get like plant-based meatballs or whatever. But back then there was just nothing. So I kind of got into, I went head for like sort of like a theme with me is that I don't do anything kind of. <laughs> like I only do four things, but the four things that I do I go <laughs> about it. Like, for instance, I can just like pan over here. Like, I don't know if you can see this, but these are my records. Oh, wow. 
I mean, and that's just part of it. Like I have a whole other area over here, but I was just listening to Nina Simone, like before you called, like basically that's, that's exactly right. Like I got into like the booking side of things by just booking punk bands, either in a house or seriously, like some of the shows that we did were in like storage sheds. Like we would do shows in storage sheds, like almost never would you do a show at an actual venue. If you had a show booked at a venue, it's just because the band was, you know, you knew there'd be a lot of people there. So as I got older, you know, I booked my first comedy show in like 2000. I booked Neil Hamburger on his first tour. And so that's why he's been to the Comedy Attic a bunch of times because we're not really the type of venue that he would normally do, but I've known him for a long time. So I booked that show in 2000 and then no other comedy shows until the Comedy Attic opened eight years later. But that's definitely like sort of my early years. And I've been collecting vinyl since that day and I have like 11,000 records. During that time, was there ever a particular sort of venue or spot where you were organizing shows or a band or performance that really made an impression on you where you sort of like, I want to make sure that I can do this again and again. No, I, you know, it's really weird is that in fact, the opposite, like when I first started out in booking, I was booking bands that would end up in massive bands. Like I did a bunch of shows for bands where like the drummer of this band called race trader is now the drummer of fallout boy mm-hmm. and like so i've known like and i did shows for De- death cab for cutie when they were really small and P- pedro the lion who i don't know mm-hmm. if you know who that is but basically like these are bands that like became bands that would have like a huge guarantee you know it's one of those things where it's like yes i'm sure there's people that are my age that are still booking bands that are like 19 or whatever but like my my taste sort of evolved with the age that I was and most of the bands that I were booking at that time became adults also. And so I sort of got out of it because bands that didn't really have a draw wanted a guarantee was because they're not 19 anymore. They're 30 Mm -hmm. or whatever. So it just sort of, it sort of changes. I honestly sort of gave up on booking for a really long time and actually, you know, ran a couple of record stores, like you said, and then actually, went into like the music distribution service for a little while. And then when my wife and I moved to Bloomington, um, I worked from home doing that for a little while. And then I decided I wanted to get like a regular job. So I actually started working at the cable company. So I became like the sales manager of of, uh, Insight. Did that for a few years and made way more money than I ever should have. I mean, you know, my wife and I were used to eating like ramen and spaghetti or whatever. So like when I started to make money, we didn't really spend it because we didn't really, we weren't used to having money. So all of a sudden we're like, well, we could probably open our own business, which is where the comedy addict was born. Like we just decided to open our own business and it was like the first thing that we thought of and neither one of us had ever done anything in the comedy business at all. The only, like I said, the only thing I'd ever done was book that show for Neil Hamburger. So we had no clue what we were doing at all. Anyone that came to shows from like 2008 to 2009 ish probably could tell that we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't even have an intro. We didn't even have like intro music. at the yeah. 
I remember those days. Like um, we just were like, here's your host. And like, they just <laughs> came up and it was like, just completely leaving people to die. Like you just didn't know mm-hmm. what you were doing. And honestly, a lot of the, like the pre-show, like, uh, th- theatrics that you see at the comedy attic is really all due to Todd Glass. Like he's really the okay. person who really made me understand that that's, you really have to sort of handle the beginning of the show like we do now. And of course now he uses what we do. Like it's sort of like he's learned from the way that I sort of have learned how to do it. And I don't know if you remember this, but he did the intro video. It Mm -hmm. it was him on the intro video for a while. And then I I kind of, I got the feeling, I remember, I think it was a Sklar Brothers show where anytime that we would have like a big audience and Todd was on the screen, two things could happen. One, they could recognize him. So that sort of changes everything if they're like oh my god it's Todd Glass on stage and then they're not really listening to him they're just like they can't believe that he's on stage and then the other side of it was it made it to where you took the onus off of the club Mm -hmm. and into the hands of someone who's not in the room at that time it seemed like it would work to have Todd do the intro but the problem was is that like I decided that it's it needs to be me to take the bullet at the top of the show because it's my club i i want to be be the one to tell people that you need to be quiet during the show a because i don't want the servers to have to do it because they have a they have a tip based mm-hmm. livelihood so if you're talking at your table which i'm sure you haven't if you like comedy but if you were <laughs> i don't want the server to have to tell you to stop because then i don't want you to think well my server was rude to me mm-hmm. so you know, the way that we kind of do it is 97% of all table talk and heckling is completely cut, like you cut the legs out by having the video. The only 3% that's left over are people that are just so, so, so stupid. Like as a person, like you're just a complete idiot. Like you are literally one of the worst human beings on earth if after, if, if you still talk after you've seen the video. Now, the one thing that can happen is if you if you come in late and you don't see the video where we get a reasonable person who still talks is that they didn't see the video and 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 like that that's a whole other issue like anyone that's late should also go to jail but my point is is that sometimes there's a you know you can't help it like we know that before covid like parking in downtown was a nightmare there was a little bit one a different quality of shows the the booking was different but also you really started planting those initial seeds of growing talent and establishing connections with the few mainstays the sort of like bob and tomers of uh the area like brad wilhelm madelano martin young guys like josh cox tom takar was there sort of a bit of like a back and forth between you and those regulars to try and sort of like hash out where you were going with it? Or were they just like the talent and you were kind of doing your ownership managerial decisions? Well, I mean, I think that it's so weird that it's this simple of an answer, but all of this was dictated by Maria Bamford. And like, what I mean by that is, is that like she really became the thing that we strive to be every week, Mm -hmm. like 
And so I think that once we all sort of saw her on stage and understood that like this exists and this Mm -hmm. is what we are, if we can figure out a way for this to be just the way that we want things to always be. So I think that, you know, pre Bamford coming the first time, I think people probably did wonder if I knew what I was doing. So you might have people who understand, like Brad knew way more about how to do this than, than me. So like I can imagine, and I'm sure even still t- today, he probably thinks, oh, I, like every once in a while, we'll book something that he doesn't think we should book or whatever. But I think for the most part, he understands what we're trying to do. But yeah, I mean, honestly, like the beginnings of our local comedy scene is such an interesting thing because it's weird to simultaneously look back at something with such fondness but also know that I was totally at fault for not making it more diverse like Mm -hmm. we had way too many straight white dudes and that was really I mean I think that ultimately history will show that that's just sort of what we had at the time and so that just sort Mm -hmm. of and, and I hope that when I'm judged, uh, you know, later in life on how we did this, I hope that people will see that, like, when given the opportunity to book more than just straight white dudes, I took, I took that and ran with it, which is mm-hmm. what I wanted to do, right? Like, I probably overuse Shanda Sung and Emily Davis right now be, because I just don't want it to be three dudes on a show. Like, I mm-hmm. do everything I can to not have that be true. And if it is three dudes on a show, at least one of them is not white or one of them is not straight, just something different to sort of cleanse your palate during the show. Now, obviously in COVID times, it's a lot more difficult because so few people are working that you kind of have to just, if you can even put together a show, it's sort of a miracle at that point. But anyway, like probably people were very rightly skeptical of how we were learning to do this. And I think that, it's an easy thing to just say, well, once Maria came, everything changed, but it really is true that I know that like my philosophy and what I wanted to do with the club changed when I saw her on stage. Her and Kyle Kinane are the two comedians that I've ever seen in my life who just simply don't translate to TV at all. Mm-hmm. And it's really weird because I love bo- both of them and I'll watch their specials and I enjoy it, but I don't, you don't get the same sort of, there's something about being in in the showroom for the show and it just changes the way it feels and those are the two best examples of what live comedy should feel like oh yeah and and they're both like two of my favorite comics so i find that interesting that you bring up kyle kinane alongside that because i i totally get where you're coming from with maria bamford she she's sort of a little uh, like, obviously, she has that sort of uh, apprehen- apprehensive, sort of anxious energy on stage, but that's more of a character. Is it the under-promise, over-deliver almost mindset? Because she has this sort of unique pr- aspect to her where you kind of don't imagine her as a comedian until she's on stage and her personality just fills the room. Yeah, it's weird because she is, it's, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that she's a character because, well, first of all, she does, uh, you know, she does do some characters in her, in her set, but she is legitimately 100% the same offstage. And it's, it's, it's almost like surprising because 
her and e Emo Phillips are the two comedians that I would just assume that when they're off stage, they're just like, hey, what's up, man? How's it going? And you're like, but it's not like that. They really are. Every The way that Emo Phillips speaks on stage is the way that he speaks off stage. And the same thing with Bamford. And they're both just as, I guess you could say, weird off stage as they are on stage. So your experience, I don't know if you've ever seen Bamford outside of Bloomington. Mm -hmm. You probably there, haven't. I haven't. No, Very I haven't. few of us have. But I would wonder if it isn't as magical feeling in Bloomington because, and I say this totally seriously, that she could be Bloomington's favorite comedian. Like, oh, yeah. Total. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we hang on her every word in a way that, and I, I'm not saying it doesn't happen in other places. I just would wonder if she has as much sort of like jazz behind her as she does in Bloomington, because we all have seen her do, she's moved mountains on our stage, both at Limestone and twice on, at, you know, she's been, she's really the only person I think other than Stuart Huff who's headlined the festival twice. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it really is interesting how her personality would lend itself to not having a command of the stage, yet she has as much of a command of that stage other than maybe Judy Gold that I've ever seen in my life. Nobody commands a stage. I mean, I've seen Nina Simone in concert. I've seen Paul McCartney. I've seen uh, the Rolling Stones. I've seen Fle Fleetwood Mac. And nobody commands a stage in art more, more than Judy Gold does. And so she's sort of like the person that I go to when I think of like, what, what does, what is the history of comedy? What does that look like if 2020 played a part in that? And that's Judy. Yeah. So thinking about commanding a room, one of the things that's sort of interesting about comedy is the evolution of like what it is to be a comedian you know you kind of start off you're an open micer maybe do a few bar rooms then your comedy club theater up to large thousand seat venues whenever i think about the comedy attic it has such a design that's like evocative of a comedy club was it just like sheer fortune that like you guys had that water damage in the roof to like install that lower yeah. ceiling or well, yeah it... I mean, to your point like a lot of the best parts of the comedy attic from the experience of the like the way that it's set up now are all it was luck and in some cases bad luck like <laughs> you mentioned because our plan all along so, so we walk into the building, this would have been like May or June of 2008. We're like, this is not a comedy club. There's no way we can do this. And the more I, we sort of looked at it and envisioned a few things, mm -hmm. we were like, maybe we could make it work. This actually is possible. And much like anyone does with, you know, anything, you check one little piece of something and then you just assume all of it looks like that. And what I mean by that is, is that we pulled off a, a or we probably asked the owner of the building, you know, what's above here? Mm -hmm. And he probably said, oh, it's this like pretty nice, like, you know, 19th century, like really, really fancy ceiling that's up here because it was like a ballroom at one time. <laughs> we probably 
took one of the drop ceiling tiles down and saw what he was talking about. and was like, oh, great. Well, we'll just pull the drop ceiling down. Well, that, all, that whole thing happened where we started to take the drop ceiling down and then we saw that the roof had partially caved in rain damage and it's not surprising because the roof of our building is just like rubber it's not yeah. even like a real roof we basically had to paint all of the tiles black and put it back up i did punk rock shows but i don't you know i can tell you right now we did shows like i said in storage sheds so you're not worrying about the acoustics mm-hmm. of a punk rock show very often so it never dawned on me that we well, putting the drop ceiling down will sort of change the, t- the tone and tenor of the room and then putting the carpet where we, where there was just like this marble floor deadened it even more. So now we have what's considered basically the best sound in comedy, but it's just because the things that we wanted to do didn't work out. Like it was just all <laughs> luck or bad luck and the brick wall, much like, you know, our phone number being LAFF, like we were like, you have to have a brick wall if it's a comedy club. Well, (laughs) it looked fine, but we don't really need that. We could have put up any wall for the aesthetic that we're presenting now. I think to your point where it looks like that we would have regular stand-up comedy shows based on the, the way the room looks, but clearly we have a much higher brow viewpoint of comedy than what the room looks like we would have. There's a certain, I don't want to say weird, but like a a little unusual reverence. Because if you're a person who grew up watching stand-up on like Comedy Central, on other things like that, you might have seen places like the Comedy Cellar in New York City or uh, the Gotham or some other places. And it has that same energy in its own way. That is what sort of, draws a lot of people in. Moving on from that, there was an interesting article published about you guys back in 2014 that sort of talked about the ins and outs it took to run the comedy attic. And in the Herald Times you're talking about? Yep. It, yeah. And there's a wonderful photo of you waiting in the green room, just like chewing almost on your phone waiting for I think it was actually Maria Bamford and Jackie Cashian to get in for a show it was sort of funny because as I was reading through it one of the things that I noticed is that there's this implication that you're a little bit of either a perfectionist or a micromanager they were like you answer all the calls you're making sure like you are handling the business operations given that that's been six years ago have you been able to help build a bit more of a business team that's helping support you in the operations where you aren't chief booker chief operations guy chief figuring out the food and menu and drinks well well, so let me first say John Blau, who wrote that article, won several awards, I believe, for that article, and now is moved. He does sports writing for the HT now, and he covers the uh, both the IU men's basketball and f- football team. So, um, and I know John pretty well. We were texting during during the football game on Saturday. So, but anyway, um, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a it's a yes and no answer. Where I have sort of taken a back seat here and there has been because I coach my son's baseball team. So I haven't been able to be like 
we we actually didn't play baseball this summer, even though our team played. We didn't play because of COVID. So the summer before that, so it's the summer of 2019, I missed quite a bit of time because uh, I was at baseball. Mm-hmm. So, and that'll happen again this upcoming season, hopefully that we, you know, things are a little bit more normal. So yeah, I have people who have keys and can start the show, like, you know, say the uh, announcements and, but n- no way will I ever allow anyone else to book the club. I mean, that's never, that will never be a thing. I mean, I guess my kids, if, <laughs> I, like, if and when I die, well, when I die, I guess, uh, they'll probably book the club, I, I guess, or mm-hmm. I, mean, I hope that they don't want to do it. But if their work ethic is anything like mine, when they're younger, they're going to just ter- turn around and they're 25 and they don't have anything to show for it. So my guess is, is that they probably will follow a similar path to me and probably will end up working at the club or, or running it or whatever. I would say it's, even though it's really hard to explain, but there's not really that much to do most of the time. For instance, like I stay home. I mean, my kids are, um, you know, are doing online classes. So I have them here during the day now, but like even before that, I was at home pretty much all the time until the show starts. There just isn't a lot of work to like the way that the club is booked now. Like, I don't mean this to sound we're great or whatever, but like I can book anyone I want. Like there's really no controversy over if someone is touring, they're going to come to the comedy attic. If, if we want them, if that makes sense. Yeah. I don't really have to spend a lot of time on the phone with agents or whatever. Like they know that we don't have a lot of seats. They know that the comedians all want to do it. There's not really, they don't really have a lot of power in this situation on the phone with me because I know that who they're calling me about wants to come here. So there's really no negotiation like there used to be. So, yeah, I mean, I have time on my hands a lot of the time. So it's not really that intricate as it was in 2014. Like we were still sort of trying to prove ourselves back then. You know, you referenced before we were talking about, you know, Schumer putting us on the map. And that that really is like another tentpole. You know, you can put that right alongside Maria coming the first time. But when Schumer you know, very publicly said we were one of the 10 best clubs in the country. That it kind of has never, that's never gone away. And in fact, I mean, these days there's basically three elite comedy clubs in the country and then the rest of it just sort of ebbs and flows. And and we're on that list of three. So Mm -hmm. it's really crazy to sort of think about how stressed out I was at certain points in those years I don't remember what part of 2014 that that was, but either my wife was pregnant with Margaret or she was just born. So like, it's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of, in fact, I think it was after Margaret was born because I think one of the other photos in the paper is me holding her, like I'm holding her and holding a door open for a, for a beer guy. La la la. Tune in next week to Big Talk for part two of my interview with Jared Thompson of Comedy Attic Bloomington, along with a few key selections from one of his favorite comedians, Maria Bamford.